The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Raman and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health, as well as being the chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our Office of Education podcasts, and this specific podcast is titled Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology, focusing on translocation RCC, renal cell carcinoma. And um, for this program, it's really my uh, pleasure to host uh, Dr. Nick Cost. Um, Nick is an associate professor uh, of urology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine uh, in the Department of Surgery in the Division of Urology. Uh, He also has a joint appointment in the Department of Pediatrics and is a co-director of their surgical oncology program at Children's Hospital of Colorado. Uh, Beyond his institutional appointments, he's really a thought leader um, in uh, oncology, particularly in the pediatric population, whereby he's on the uh, university's hereditary renal cell cancer program and the BHL Clinical Care Center. He also serves um, on the Children's Oncology Group Renal Tumor uh, Committee and the NCCN Testicular Guidelines Panel. Now, he he really comes across as a very important person, but I would be the first to say that I knew him uh, far before he was a very important person. Uh, and, and I had the pleasure of meeting Nick. Actually, now it's coming up a little, almost 15 years ago when I was a fellow down in Dallas and he was still a... Uh, uh, a junior or mid, mid-career resident. I can't remember exactly when it, when that was. Uh, but Nick, it's first of all, outstanding to have you. Uh, and second of all, uh, really uh, fantastic to see uh, how well uh, your career has blossomed uh, since uh, we were down in Dallas together. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I look back very fondly on those times together in Dallas. A lot of uh, uh, fun late uh, nights with uh, Dr. Kadedu uh, doing uh, some pretty crazy laparoscopic surgeries uh, that now we would uh, mostly do robotically, uh, as much as I'm sure that pains him to hear. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, Nick, um, maybe, you know, just for our audience, uh, I, the, the first thing I, I ask is maybe just sort of give us the 20,000 foot view before we sort of dive into some of the nuances of of you know pediatric renal tumors, just give us a twenty thousand foot view here of, of what are we going to be talking about here, and and the context that we should be thinking about this. Right. Well, you know, I think fortunately, adolescent and young adult cancer in general is is pretty rare when we put it in perspective with older adults, but um, it, it's not zero. And um, the sad part is is that it robs a lot of life because these are younger patients when it happens. And we have some diagnoses that we think classically are kind of these adolescent, young adult malignancies or AYA for, for short. Um, you know, testis cancer has always been like the real hallmark um, of an AYA malignancy or, or lymphomas. Uh, I think we've all and been paying attention to media in the last four or five years, a, a number of young adults with uh, colorectal cancer. So there are a number of these that we're starting to see more and more of. And one of those is kidney cancer. And... Um, you know, when we think about kidney cancer, it's common to think of kids that either have, you know, Wilms tumor when they're prepubertal, that's obviously most common. And then we think in adults, obviously, of renal cell carcinoma and specifically clear cell renal cell carcinoma. But in the younger patients, if they don't have a genetic predisposition, we just generally don't think of renal cell carcinoma as, as being an entity. But the reality is, is that uh, 
after about 12 years of age, renal cell carcinoma is the most common type of kidney cancer. Um, but while it shares that same name as, uh, you know, clear cell RCC, which we're all super familiar with, um, it, it's a different entity and um, it's biologically different. It, histologically, it's classified as most often translocation renal cell carcinoma. Um, and uh, it has a different uh, kind of behavior. They tend to metastasize earlier. You get more nodal involvement. And, you know, it's just important to recognize because they, they need to be managed differently kind of from the very beginning, uh, from their workup all the way through their therapy. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to sit down uh, with you today and, and uh, drill a little deeper on it because I think there's some important points for, for all of us that care for this population uh, to know. No, that's, that's uh, I think, just a, a great framework uh, and I think really helps as we talk about some of the nuances uh, over the next 25 to 30 minutes. So um, I think one of the things, if I remember correctly, I think your wife is a pediatrician. Is that right? Yeah, my, my wife's a pediatric oncologist. Pediatric and, oncologist. So, you know, my wife's a pediatrician and, and I think one of the things she reminds me all the time is, you know, children... Uh, are different than adults, and uh, and children are not simply small people, right. and and I feel like this sort of ties into maybe the the broadly the the first kind of um, maybe talking point for us, which is really that adolescents with cancer um, are different from both children um, as well as sort of their older um, counterpart, their older adult counterparts with cancer, and I think you touched on that a little bit, but maybe to sort of talk to us a little bit about you know, whether it's kidney or testis, how is this adolescent population different than those that we see on sort of the other ends of the spectrum? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that, you know, every stage in life is slightly different. And, you know, to take it out of this just a bit, you know, we also talk about like geriatric oncology, right? So we're recognizing even that those oldest adults have a different experience. But to, to your point and what we're talking about today with adolescents, there are data that back that up. Um, when I was an oncology fellow in Dallas, we looked at this in testis cancer and, and we found that those adolescents did worse from a survival standpoint than children before puberty or older adults when they were in their you know 20s and 30s so this kind of teenage group after puberty do worse uh, also in kidney cancer we know that uh, you know adolescents with wilms for example even if they have the same kind of tumor as prepubertal patients they don't do as well that, that's been established and and some of it has to do with biology, probably, but then there's a lot of other things. There's issues of compliance. There's issues of um, uh, insurance coverage. You know, uh, we, we live in a different era now than we did maybe a decade ago, but there's still issues of, of how patients get to appointments when they're uh, a little older. Um, they don't have their parents maybe to take them, um, but they're not yet totally independent or they don't have maybe a spouse to help them. Um, there's some real issues around supportive care. So, um, you know, the psychosocial component of this is enormous. There are lots of data, uh, probably best in the testis cancer population, that this age group really overutilizes compared to uh, their age match norms and compared to similar cancer in different age groups, they overutilize uh, health services or need them more. And, and, and then, one thing that's really interesting, something that I'm focused on, is that there, there's a gap here between specialists. So, uh, you know, pediatric oncologists, pediatric urologists, pediatric surgeons see certain diseases and they're very familiar with them. Then there are adult specialists, adult medical oncologists and adult you know, urologic oncologists that are very comfortable with 
but and there's overlap there imagine like a venn diagram where there, there's overlap uh, you know in kidney cancer testis cancer but um it's like each group knows just enough about them to be a little dangerous that there really has to be some understanding that everybody needs to be involved and that there are gaps there uh that we we need to address and it's not always medical per se right it's not always dosing the chemotherapy it's not always just oh well they need this surgery or that surgery there are all these supportive components and and then we have to be careful about what we don't know so unfortunately because of the way clinical trials are run um, adolescents are very often kind of left out so pediatric cancer trials while they can include adolescents they don't always recruit them heavily uh, adult cooperative groups traditionally have not you know, had interest in working on anything under 18. So you can imagine now you have this gap of, of kids after puberty and before they're 18 that we just don't know as much. I mean, we know enough from big data to know they don't enroll on clinical trials at the same rates. But so uh, we're really left with anecdote um, on how to how to best care for them. And we just assume since it's the same histology, they should be managed in a certain way. But, um, you know, that that may not be true. So, I mean, I think you, you really highlighted, um, I, I feel like two important points here. One is uh, there's the disease biology, right? The biology of these tumors. And then there's everything else that you can't just, you know, neatly package into tumor biology. And, and I think you hit on some of these key elements, whether it's, you know, compliance, the supportive care, uh, insurance, uh, clinical trials enrollment. So it seems like this is a very sort of nuanced population, uh, both from their disease that they have, but then also the mechanisms that we have in order to care for them. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about maybe um, what are there support groups? Are there people doing research in this space? I mean, just for the general listener, who is sort of, I, I don't know, exploring this concept of these adolescent uh, uh, patients with adolescent patients with these tumors. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there are some groups that are very interested in it. Um, it, some of it's just the logistic challenges in doing it, but we've been very fortunate over the last five or six years to have two examples, um, one in, in, uh, testis cancer and one in, in kidney cancer where, uh, different, uh, NCI, uh, sponsored cooperative groups have worked together through the NCTN mechanism where, even though in the, the, these two cases, these two clinical trials, they're run by the children's oncology group, they're actually open to patients of all ages and they're open even at institutions where, you know, it's not a COG institution. So they partner through the NCTN, you know, with Alliance sites, ECOG sites, SWOG sites. And so uh, both in germ cell uh, cancer of the testis and then the, the translocation renal cell carcinoma, the study I'd like to maybe highlight a little bit more later that, uh, that we're running right now, um, you know, we're able to offer a clinical trial to, to patients of all ages. And I think it's in some ways kind of like that idea that became so in vogue uh, in the last 10 years. Oh, well, we, you don't look at the site of the cancer, but you look at maybe the molecular driver and that's how clinical trials should be organized. I think similarly, age is, you know, just a random number um, and, and that can be oversaid, but you know, that maybe rather than say, well, just because you're 17, you can't really be open, you can't be in on this trial or, or so forth, that we, we have to get away from that. And we have to think really, what is your disease? And then we need to enroll everybody we can with that disease and learn more about it. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think we, we've seen uh, a big change in how the, the NCI um, funded cooperative groups look at this. And um, we're fortunate that we have a couple of 
concrete examples where, where um, we've overcome some of the historical barriers. So you, you've alluded to a little bit um, the, this inherent difference in, in tumor biology. Um, talk to us a little bit about that now more, because I, I feel like this is going to sort of dovetail with some of the, the subsequent conversations about trials and therapies. But talk to us about the biology of these, of these tumors. Yeah, so, you know, I think it can be difficult. I mean, I think of some, a patient I just saw in the last couple of months, you know, 14-year-old with uh, you know, enormous number of pulmonary metastases and a big renal tumor. And we go into that conversation not having any idea, is it renal cell carcinoma, is it Wilms tumor? Um, and that conversation is extremely different because, you know, metastatic Wilms tumor enjoys a, a prognosis of over 80 or 90% even, even in that setting. Whereas, you know, metastatic renal cell carcinoma, regardless of kind of the, the subtype, you know, it just does not enjoy nearly that kind of success. So that makes for a, a different conversation. And then when you start talking about renal cell carcinoma, inevitably what happens is patients at that age or their families start getting on the internet and they start looking and then they see everything about clear cell renal cell. And then that really can drive their questions, right? So they're starting to ask about therapies that we know work really well for clear cell renal cell carcinoma but we don't know how they work for these non-clear cell histologies, specifically translocation renal cell carcinoma. And then also it brings up some really important questions about syndromic predisposition um, or other specific histologies, for example, renal medullary carcinoma. That's one, you know, we all get taught and uh, questioned on when we're studying for boards, but then many of us would never see that again. Uh, but it, it's one of those that uh, behaves extremely differently than, than other kidney tumor histologies. So, there are um, what I tell our fellows all the time, you know, keep your mind open to all the potential differential diagnoses. It's, it's not quite the same as in a 65 year old where we see it and it's a big renal mass and we kind of, we stop thinking about really the histology in those patients. You know, it's kind of the same, uh, you know, diagnosis and workup pathway for, for patients in this age group. It's, it's different and it's driven by the fact that the histology and biology may all be really different. And, um, I think the last really important point about that is that the diagnosis isn't as easy as it would seem, you know, even if you've got the kidney out, um, pathologists have a really hard time finding this translocation type. And the reason is because the histology can be all over the map. It can look like a, I guess the most classic thing, they talk about it looking like this clear cell papillary hybrid or a hybrid type RCC. And then, you know, people think about well, is that like a chromophome hybrid? So it can look like almost anything. And really the diagnosis has to be made with cytogenetics um, because there's a, there's a finicky immunohistochemistry stain that, that there's a few of them out there and they don't work great. So a lot of them never even really get formally diagnosed. They just kind of get in, thrown into this renal cell carcinoma NOS uh, bucket. And, uh, and that's problematic from a clinical trial standpoint. Um, the, the last important thing to think about is anybody you ever see that gets an RCC in young adulthood after having a prior, prior malignancy, uh, definitely think of translocation type RCC because about 10 to 15% of all of them are a secondary malignancy. Essentially, you know, the, the prior radiotherapy or chemotherapy induces a, a translocation event um, due to their mechanisms of action, and then they end up with this driver for a future uh, secondary malignancy, which is in this case, uh, translocation RCC. So you, you've talked to us a little bit about how these are just biologically different entities. And, and certainly I think 
you know, unless you're, if you want to say, unless your spidey sense is tingling or unless you have a clinical sense of this, it's not the easiest diagnosis to make, as you alluded to with the cytogenetics. Now, um, what about disease biology? I, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit. Now, th these are more aggressive than conventional clear cell. These are more aggressive than Wilms tumor, as you sort of alluded to a few minutes ago. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, how, how biologically aggressive are these tumors? What are some of the, the clinical uh, uh, data or pearls that you can share with the audience? Yeah, th there have been a couple of good kind of epidemiology staging type papers that have come out over the last five years. One from uh, the group in Europe, um, the, the French group has a really robust uh, juvenile renal cell carcinoma uh, cohort. Um, the European pediatric oncology group, PSYOP, they've published on this. And then we at COG have as well. And they're pretty, they're pretty uh, similar, all these data that these patients with adolescent renal cell carcinoma uh, over a third of them are going to have node positivity. And unlike in adults with clear cell RCC, that does not track with the T stage. So, you know, you can't just say, oh, this is a small renal mass under four centimeters. We, we you know, as long as the imaging shows no nodal involvement, we really don't need to worry about it. That, that's just not the case. And, and again, that's consistent across these different uh, uh, studies that have been done on this. Um, and then the unfortunate part is, is that administrative data would indicate that uh, a, a small minority ever even get lymph nodes surgically sampled. So there's a real disconnect between how the disease behaves and then how they're being managed. And so we try to beat the drum about, you know, even if you're doing a partial in, in a younger patient under, I would say the age of 30, if they don't have a predisposition syndrome, you know, they're not a VHL patient that you know already what's going to you know, be the case. If they have a small renal mass, I would uh, encourage lymph node sampling at the time of, of surgery. Um, outside of lymph nodes, you know, the, there is a high rate of high T stage. So over half are going to be T3 or T4. And uh, a lot of them are going to be, uh, you know, stage four, not because of T4 per se, but because of distant metastatic disease. Um, you know, lung and bone and liver, we see all of these things. And so, um, it's just different than, you know, what I feel like we usually see with clear cell. Um, and uh, the, the, the one thing I feel like I've been saying all this pessimistic stuff, I think the one thing I should mention is we have good data though in these patients, even though that nodal involvement rate is really high, complete resection uh, of these patients is associated with a good, a good cure rate. So we just published in cancer last year that um, the cure rate, even with nodal positive disease, but if you can completely resect them, they have a cure rate of over 85%. And so, um, you know, right now in general in RCC, I think we're all really excited about adjuvant uh, immunotherapy and we should be, don't get me wrong, but I think uh, in this population, the best thing you can do for the patient is complete surgical resection. So, so that, that was sort of the, the question I was gonna ask you, Nick, is, you know, you're talking about some of these data, um, and, and, and maybe just for a second, tell me a little bit about the, the treatment paradigm that you look at these patients with. So that, that trial that you told me about, for example, who's got a renal mass and some evidence of metastasis, is, is the first course of action just in the management um, obtain tissue so that you know which one of these entities you're dealing with? Are you dealing with a translocation, a Wilms, or a clear cell? Is that sort of the first step? And then and then sort of related to that is, 
let's say if they have metastatic disease, do you treat with systemic therapy and then come back and do the nephrectomy, or or do you do you lead with the nephrectomy in that setting? Maybe just uh, just yeah. tell me a little bit about that. I think that's a great question. I think this is something that we all struggle with, regardless of the age of the patient with the, with a kidney tumor if they've got metastatic disease. Um, so just to your point, you have to think about what it might be. And there's some real uh, real world implications for how you start with it. So if it turns out to be Wilms, um, even though it's metastatic, if you biopsy them up front, you mandate that they go down a certain treatment pathway and a certain staging locally that may involve radiation and, um, and certain chemotherapies, so specifically doxorubicin. And, uh, that has real impact on heart function and the rate of long-term chf in that population is really high it's it's over a quarter so um and even though it's metastatic there are cases where by just doing the nephrectomy up front they ultimately don't need as much therapy so you know i think about these in a couple of ways one could i safely do the nephrectomy um and fortunately when we're dealing with kids you know, unless they have an overwhelming burden of a pulmonary disease that it's not safe, or they have a thrombus that is, you know, of a level that doing upfront surgery, you know, kind of a level, I would say definitely level three or four that I would give pause to think about it. Um, I would advocate for upfront surgery. Um, they can generally tolerate it and, and the data would indicate that they probably do better. Um, I think then the, the debate about how to treat them adjuvantly is going to come down to what the histology is from that nephrectomy. Um, while we do more and more, you know, do needle biopsies in adults with uh, metastatic disease, um, I think that there's some consensus around for uh, patients that can tolerate upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy, that that's probably, you know, where we sit today in 2022, probably still what most people would do. Uh, I would say that that extends to, to this population as well. Um, I just think that uh, before you know doing a biopsy, I would definitely talk uh, to someone that has some expertise with with uh, you know kids with kidney cancer to make sure that you're not going to head them down a pathway um, that that could have been avoided. So it seems like this area you, you gave us some statistics that that many of them. Um, uh, many of these patients with translocation RCC tumors may have uh, more advanced disease. Uh, you discussed how uh, biologically it's just more of an aggressive entity than other histologic subtypes of kidney cancer. And uh, But at the same time, you, you did talk about how uh, indeed surgical resection seems to have a lot of value, very, you know, some studies implicating even for stage three disease um, you know, an over 85% recurrence-free uh, survival. So all of this seems like it would be a ripe area for trials, clinical trials, right? You have an aggressive disease entity. Surgery, as you alluded to, is not as good as what we see for adult kidney cancer, where uh, most T1s, frankly, are cured with surgery. And most T2s, honestly, are cured with surgery. So talk to us a little bit about, about what trials there are, are there registries, uh, are there any trials that have come out or, or are currently accruing that we should be aware of? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, we're dealing with such a rare entity that the only way we get better is by accumulating data. 
And so there, there are options here. One is a registry, which, you know, imparts no, you know, mandated treatment in one way or another, but it's a, it's a registry for uh, patients of all ages with translocation renal cell carcinoma. And uh, it's uh, trccregistry.org. And uh, it's a really nice study because it's, it's not incumbent upon the institution to open it. Essentially, if you, you get on the website or you have the patient get on the website, they can contact the registry and the registry then does the consent and the registry tracks down the medical records directly. So it's a lot of work on the registry side, but it's very easy as a patient, as a practitioner. And uh, I think that's one way we can, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we can know a lot more than we do right now. Um, in a clinical trial setting, we do have, uh, as I alluded to before, a prospective clinical trial. It's a phase two study looking at uh, checkpoint inhibition and, and anti-VEGF TKIs. So it's uh, a two-arm study. Nivolumab is a single agent versus nivolumab plus excitinib for patients with metastatic translocation RCC. And that's a patients with translocation RCC of any age. And so while it's being run by the Children's Oncology Group, it's open through the NCTN to, to adult institutions. And um, you actually, we expect we'll end up with more adult patients than we will pediatric patients, just because even though it's rare in adults, there are still just more adults with kidney cancer than there are mm -hmm. with you know, true kids with kidney cancer. And so we really are leaning heavily on our adult uh, you know, urologic oncology community to enroll to this uh, study. We, we've done well. We've had some hiccups. Um, the, the kind of floor changed underneath us in the time we were designing the study where, you know, checkpoint inhibition became clearly the, the kind of standard and then more emphasis on combination therapy. So we've had to amend the study a couple of times. Most recently, we had it closed for a prolonged amendment. It's just been reopened in the last uh, month or so where now we allow for a crossover. So if the patients progress on the nivolumab only arm, they can come over to the combination arm. Um, and I think that allayed some of our uh, GU medical oncologists anxiety about that they feel that combination therapy is the standard of care. It's just really important to realize that that's a standard of care in clear cell renal cell carcinoma. We, we don't have the data to say that that's the right thing in this patient population. And that's why the study frankly, has to get done. Uh, I feel like we're at a moment where we, we can answer this question. We can look at it. If we miss this opportunity, I feel like everyone's just going to run with the banner from what they've learned in clear cell or even, even other non-translocation, non-clear cell histologies and say, well, this is just how we need to be treating these patients, even though we don't have the data to support that. So this is a unique opportunity in time that we can enroll these patients and have an answer. Um, so I, I, you know, I put myself out there. I'm the vice chair of the study nationally, and I, I'm I'm happy to to help shepherd people through the enrollment process. We we only need about 25 more, so please do. Uh, and the, the last one I would just I would mention is um, for renal medullary carcinoma. You know that's a rare entity as well with really poor prognosis, um, but there are a couple of studies. One is an ipinevo combo study. One is an ipinevo and cabo uh, study that's open. So. I think just getting in the mindset, if we come across something as clinicians that's out of the ordinary, I think we should look to see, is there a clinical trial option available for them? And in this case, we do have those, and, and I, I hope we can take advantage of them because it's an enormous effort to, to put them together. And it's, it's awfully sad how often um, 
prospective randomized clinical trials in urologic oncology don't fully accrue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think the failure is kind of in the dissemination side rather than in the, the idea side. So, um, you know, real practical question is, um, obviously you, you live in this world, you, you probably see a very skewed population in that you get referrals of adolescents and young adults with kidney cancer, and, and therefore you're looking at it through a certain lens and, and you kind of highlighted a lot of the ways you think about stuff. Maybe now take me back to uh, the average urologist or even those of us that do kidney cancer like myself, but, but obviously don't do them as much in the adolescent uh, population. When we see these patients, what are some of the key take-homes that we need to think about the next time we, what, what light bulb should be going off when we see a, a patient in that age population range with kidney cancer? What should we be thinking about? Right. Yeah, I, I um, have a whole talk on this for our fellows. It's more of like a philosophical talk, but it has to do with, you know, going to the operating room is the easiest thing we do in some senses, right? It's the thought beforehand that really takes nuance and takes attention. And and so to your point, rather than just say, oh, this patient I'm seeing in front of me has this big kidney mass, we need to proceed right to the OR. When 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 they're of this age, start thinking about well, you know, what else do I need to do first? You know, do I need to find out what clinical trials I could enroll them on? Uh, do I need to incorporate our pediatric oncologists, our pediatric urologists? Do I need to, you know, get for sure? I, I don't even think it's a question. You need to get your psychosocial uh, support team from the cancer center involved because, you know, these kids uh, they have really unique needs from that standpoint. And and if we're going to cure them at a high rate from our medical therapy, but we don't ever address that mental health aspect. Um, we know there's a high rate of suicide in this patient population after cure. We're not really doing our job as doctors. So definitely uh, bringing all of those people in. And uh, and then the one that's really important in anybody that's, you know, under the age of uh, 40 or 50 is genetic counseling. You know, we start to think about that more and more. I think the last decade we've seen it in almost every urologic malignancy, this understanding of genetic predisposition. But for sure, uh, if you see a kidney cancer patient under the age of 46, they need to see a genetic counselor. And, you know, Brian Schock has done a great job beating that drum. Uh, you know, I think a, a landmark publication in, in JCO, I guess now almost 10 years ago, uh, looking at the NCI data showing that that age cutoff was important. Um, so thinking about genetic testing for these patients. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, when you're in the OR, thinking about what do I need to do uh, to, to, to treat them fully? So back to that point about, think about lymph node sampling, even though we wouldn't normally do that in say a small renal mass, um, you know, I think it, it should be part of the, the treatment or if you don't wanna think about it as treatment, maybe at least as diagnostic to appropriately stage them uh, when they're under the age of 30. Um, those are the things that I really, uh, you know, try to mentally have as a checklist. And then again, you know, as somebody that just maybe say is like a true believer in, in clinical trials, I think trying to find whenever possible um, a clinical trial for every patient. I think um, these things are rare enough, but we're not asking, you know, even if it's not at your center, we're not, you know, asking you to send every patient away to go to another site to, to be on a clinical trial. These are rare things. And ultimately, I think all of your patients will be better served when we have the answers for these kind of trials. Yeah, it seems like for these rare disease entities, right? Trials, 
and registries help a lot because I, I'm going to imagine that at most places, the number of patients getting treated with this disease entity is low. And so I feel like if you're really trying to map out clinical outcomes, you're really trying to devise clinical trials, uh, it, it, it's really beneficial to actually be part of a larger registry. And obviously, if you have the infrastructure, of course, as well, uh, along with your oncology colleagues to offer a trial. The other uh, interesting thing that happens, just real quick, when you yeah. do registries, when you start looking at these issues, uh, entities that people say are rare, what happens is when you start looking for them, you find them, right? So um, mm. I would I would say we there's been some interesting studies looking at a few institutions where they've gone back with modern cytogenetic testing, and they've taken these RCCs that they called NOS or even clear cell in this age group, and they go back and look at them with modern techniques. Many more of them had translocation RCC than they originally thought. Hmm. So that's another interesting thing that happens when you start to really look for these entities, you, you find them. So, Well, uh, Nick, I, I really want to, this has really been a, a very enjoyable discussion, very informative for me as somebody who doesn't really do a lot of work in this patient population. I really want to thank you uh, for your time, uh, obviously your expertise. Uh, it's really been a pleasure having you on. No, I'm, I, it's been great. Um, you know, again, I think very fondly about the time we had spent together uh, clinically uh, many years ago, but uh, also the time today. I, I'm very humbled and honored to to have you, uh, you know, ask me to do this, and and also just want to congratulate you on your position there at the AUA and the great job that you're you're doing. Oh, great. thanks so much, Nick. Uh, I'll certainly invite you back after you said that. Now that'll definitely buy you another uh, another podcast in the future. But um, certainly, thanks to the audience. Uh, uh, thanks very much to Dr. Nick Koss for his time today and, and certainly for the group. Um, if for any additional information, please visit us at auanet.org uh, slash university. Uh, Nick, have a great weekend. Thanks, Jake.